This is one of the worst race-based, religious-based, ethnic-based hate attacks that happened in 50 years by a known affiliated white supremacist. And this guy wasn't a sympathizer. He wasn't a lone wolf. He was affiliated. You know, that, that kind of scale not only speaks to this incident, but speaks to the state that the country is in. Katrina. Ferguson. Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after the national news cycle moves on? I'm Ziba Blay, and this is I'm Still Here, a HuffPost podcast. On Sunday, August 5th, 2012, an avowed white supremacist named Wade Michael Page approached the Sikh temple of Wisconsin with a 9mm semi-automatic handgun. He killed six people and injured four others before taking his own life. It was, at the time, one of the deadliest hate crimes in U.S. history. If the shooter's intent that day was to somehow sow more hatred in this small Milwaukee suburb, then his plan has backfired spectacularly. This summer, HuffPost reporter Christopher Mathias traveled to Oak Creek, Wisconsin, just before the five-year anniversary, to visit the temple and found a community whose spirit wasn't broken, but instead endlessly resilient. On this episode, you'll hear a story about a man named Pardeep Kalika, whose father was killed that day, and a former neo-Nazi, who Pardeep now calls his best friend. Here's Christopher Mathias. The morning of August 5th, 2012, Pardeep Kalika was on his way to temple with his family, where his father was the temple president. August 5th, 2012 uh, was a normal Sunday uh, morning. It was I remember it was pretty balmy outside. Um, the day before, I played a basketball tournament. So, uh, you know, getting to that age, I'm just happy that I didn't break a hip or an ankle. And, and just really being appreciative of life that morning um, and getting the kids ready to go to Sunday school. As we got as we got ready, I had rushed my daughter along. Um, she's definitely uh, the very uh, uh, definition of procrastination, and uh, you know, just rushing her along. She forgot her notebook at the house. So as we as we went to the temple that morning, um, our saving grace was that she forgot the notebook at the house, um, and uh, you know, just that day. What what haunted me about August fifth, two thousand twelve, is Definitely what happened, um, but also what could have happened. Um, so at that point, I felt very fortunate for having lived through it, having my children live through it. Um, but uh, at another, you know, another part of me felt very sort of guilty and, um, you know, just uh, just victimized. As she forgot the notebook, we, we you know, had, had a split second decision to like, OK, you know what? We can just not worry about the notebook or we can turn back around and go get the notebook. Knowing how strict um, Sunday school teachers at a, at, a, at a Gudwara are, I decided to turn back around and get her the notebook and uh, really, you know, just really had like let her have it on the way there. I'm like, oh, you always forget things. You, were, you, should, you know. And uh, once we got to the temple itself or to the street that goes into the temple, um, uh, I got out of my car and asked the police officer who's just recently had barricaded the road, you know, what uh, what's going on? Why can't we go through? And and I probably wouldn't have done that before, but, um, you know, just something something didn't feel right. And you just have that feeling. So it's it's not like I, I go to every barricaded intersection and, and say, well, you know, what what's going down? What's happening down the street? 
But uh, you know, the, this just it didn't feel right, and there's too many police cars that were passing us on um, the road as we were getting there. So I, you know, I knew something had happened, and the police officer tells me that there's been a shooting at the temple, and uh, you know, I, I, I my mind went to my mom and dad who I knew were inside, and uh, and I told him that I said, I mean, my mom and dad are here. Uh, how long ago did the shooting happen? And he said about ten minutes ago, and. Uh, then my mind went back into thinking about my children and, and myself. And, and it was just that, like, that confusion that started that morning um, and the entire day. Mom was in the kitchen at the time when the, uh, they got notification that there was a shooter outside that was, that was shooting. And uh, she and um, 14 other people hid inside the uh, closet at the Gudwara. So they found shelter, um, you know, right away. But at the same time, uh, she could hear those screams coming out from people who were being shot. Law enforcement uh, eventually notified us. But even as that was happening uh, throughout the day, you, you just know. You, you get sinking feelings because you haven't heard from somebody. And, and and mom was inside the temple. She she heard the gunshots. She heard people screaming and crying. And 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 uh, she had a sort of a premonition. When when we were across the street in the bowling alley, that's where the command post was set up. Um, she knew then. We we knew then. We knew we're like okay. If we haven't heard from dad, and dad he was a skinny guy, but he was wiry and strong, and so he was a, he was a survivor. Um, so we were like, if he hasn't contacted us, something is really wrong. So it didn't take us till 10 o'clock that night to be able to figure that out. Um, you know, but they, that's the law, law enforcement has to make that confirmation, uh, and, and let you, or that notification, I'm sorry, to let you know that, uh, you know, this person has passed. Um, I think it affected not only our family, but the entire community. He was, a, he was a temple president for 15 years. He um, was the glue that held that uh, temple together. You're always trying to be the fixer. And so he definitely was that. Uh, I mean, he was very uh, scholarly as far as like, not in, maybe not, not in academics, but in uh, the culture of Sikhism. Um, so he, he, they called him Gyanni, which is like, you know, kind of a teacher of, of Sikh scholars, you know, a Sikh scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like losing, losing dad, you know, they, they lost the figurehead that basically it was, you know, was, was, was the president for the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's five years later and continues to be felt. Is that something you, you know, can talk to your mom about now a lot? Or, I mean, you're obviously a trauma therapist now yeah. and that was a very traumatic thing for her. And yeah. like, how does that, how does that go? Yeah, we, um, you know, we do talk, we do talk about what happened and obviously reliving the story it, it is a very public um event i mean this was one of the worst race-based religious-based ethnic-based uh hate attacks that happened in 50 years by a known affiliated white supremacist and this guy wasn't a sympathizer he wasn't a lone wolf he was affiliated mm-hmm. and um you know that that kind of scale not only speaks to this 
sort of this, this incident, but speaks to the to the country and and the state of the state that the country is in. So um, you know, she's had to repeat um, what happened in there uh, quite a bit, and I you know, it for me it does it is concerning as a son to hear that and to, to know that you know every time mom tells it, she's reliving it as well. She's reliving not only the just what happened to them, but where, where she was and how she was feeling in that time. She uh, today is is proud to, to to say that you know what the community, not only just the Sikh community but the broader community stepped up, and was able to, um, you know, create a lot of healing. Not not just you know since not five years since then, but even just that day, you know, as we felt victimized, as we felt vulnerable, there was other congregations who were getting out of their own religious worships who sh- just showed up. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about the Buddhist uh, prayer of Tango and saying that, you know, people were there breathing in suffering and breathing out healing as it was happening. The months after the massacre were painful for Pardeep. The man who killed his father was dead, and there was no way to ask him why he did what he did. Yeah, it was a few months after um, after the shooting happened. Um, and for us, we just got busy into doing what we needed to do to put on a brave face for the world as, as a Sikh community. And as we're doing that, you just get so just entrenched in work that you don't deal with the pain. Um, uh, and two months after that, the, you know, just kind of doing that for the world, the pain started to settle in. Is that this is not, you know, these six people are not coming back. This really did happen. It's not a bad dream. It just it really happened, and um, you know, dealing with that pain was incredibly hard. Um, what what was what was even harder was not having a lot of answers. Um, you know, our community felt victimized and marginalized, um, obviously because a white supremacist came into the temple on Sunday morning and said, "Not only do you not belong in this country, but you don't belong on the face of this earth." Not having enough answers about why that happened really re-traumatizes a population. It's almost to the sense that you're not even worth knowing why this happened to you. So me reaching out to Arnold was, uh, you know, was to try to find out why things like this occur. So he wrote an email to Arno Michaelis. Arno is a well-known former neo-Nazi and was a founder of the Northern Hammerskins, the same violent white supremacist group to which Wade Michael Page belonged. But Arno left the group in the mid-1990s and renounced his Nazi past. I wanted him to answer for a person in Wade Page who had done this and taken his own life. I wanted Arno as a former white supremacist who was also part of the same gang and helped found the same gang answer to me why something like this would happen. And as we sat down, um, we did, did, uh, you know, we had... Uh, dialogue about you know about this about why that happened but more or less we had dialogue about who we were and uh and what we were going to do about it going forward arno came up in the white power skinhead culture in milwaukee but in the 1990s he grew disillusioned with the movement and eventually left he transformed himself into an advocate against violence and hate he was at work when he heard the news about the oak creek massacre and I just, I remember the Twitter feed just like blowing up and hashtag sick temple shooting, hashtag uh, 
multiple shooters was coming in, multiple dead, and it it just it chilled my blood. I, I was I just had this sinking feeling like this is my backyard. And even though they, it wasn't until later that evening that it was announced that the shooter was a white supremacist, like I had a feeling right away that that's what this was about. And so that night, they just said it was a white supremacist. Right. They didn't name him until Monday. The shooting happened on Sunday. So that night, I lay awake wondering if this was like one of my guys right. or somebody I recruited. The next day when his name was announced and a little bit of his background, and again, like the seven years is very hazy for me, so it took a long time to be, okay, did I know this guy or not? And uh, tracking down like where he was born and where he lived earlier, I was like, yeah, I didn't know anybody from there. Did you reach out to Pardeep? Pardeep actually reached out to me. In that case, when did he reach out and describe the moment getting that message and how it made you feel? Party emailed me on October 22nd of 2012. It was uh, later in the night. It was probably like 10 p.m. ish. And I, I'm kind of a second shifter, so that's like prime time for me work wise. And I just, I remember seeing the email and uh, Party had said he, his dad was killed in the shooting and he he was really just open and, and, genuine in an email like like uh, no email i'd ever read and he said that uh the party is way better at being succinct than i am (laughs) he said in just a few sentences that uh he had contacted me because he was kind of at a low point since the shooting uh months after it and while that might not seem to make sense what what happens is in the aftermath of an incident like that it's just kind of a blur um, for weeks on end, people were coming by the house like two or three times a day, bringing food. Every time they come over, you got to like it, – it, it's the sick cultural thing. You have to like go through your grieving all over again. And uh, while that's very really cathartic, it, it's also really stressful, but it, also, it all happens in kind of a blur. In addition to the, the people coming by, there's all kinds of media. And so Party was doing as much media as I had, and, and that helped to kind of accelerate the pace of that time between August and October. So by October, like all that stuff was just sinking in for him. And so he was at a low point. And he reached out to me because he wanted to understand how somebody could have done this. And I, the week following the shooting for me was a blur as well. I had, I was doing media like eight to 10 hours a day for three, four days. And, and it kind of trickled off in the next week. So I, I was pretty high profile. Party had seen me in uh, media pieces. I had seen him. And so I emailed him back right away. And I just told him how honored I was that, to hear from him. And to let him know I could, uh, I, any way I could help. I, I really, you know, I was driven to. And uh, we we made arrangements to have dinner uh, that following Monday, which uh, was really kind of an epic event in itself. A party we got there before I did, and he was parked, and I kind of walked past him. And it, I'm, I'm a big dude, and it was like twilight in October. I had a hoodie on, and I'm kind of like stalking down the street and he sees me walking past and he's like he's just about to text me and say he couldn't make it <laughs> and he kind of had to like steal himself and, and just be like okay i'm going in and he followed followed me in there a couple minutes later 
and uh, you know I was I was glad that he he picked the Thai restaurant because if he would have picked a, a burger place or a bar, I probably would have called the meeting off. Right. But, you know, here's my assumption of like, hey, you know what? White supremacists can't handle spicy Thai food. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we all have yeah. sort of these like stereotypes about people. And first time he opened his mouth, I was like, does he really talk like that? <laughs> so so, so there's, a, there's a lot of first impressions of, of just, hey, you know what? Can I really trust this guy? Can a white supremacist really change? And uh, honestly, asking myself that, um, and, and uh, you know, I, as we went through our process of trusting, I, I found myself saying, you know what, if we don't believe in change, what what good are we? Oh, you know, as as a therapist, if I don't believe in change, um, what am I doing? And I mean, it changed now as the only real truth in life, that things are going to change. Embracing change can help us um, really drive it for the better. Holding off on change and saying, you know what, we need to preserve what we got, cultural preservation or whatever preservation, is just going to leave you resentful. And when he walked in, he had this tape above his eye. And I... I've always been like a ruffian my whole life, but I still love rough stuff. And my body's so destroyed from it, I can't really practice it anymore. But I love MMA, I love UFC, and things like that. So when I saw him walk in with his eye taped up, I was just like, dude, what happened to your eye? Did you get in a brawl or something? Like that was the first word out of my mouth. And he went on to under he went on to tell the story of how about a week earlier. He was bathing his uh, five-year-old son and eight-year-old daughter. And his daughter was getting to the point where she's getting self-conscious. And she's like, Dad, don't look at me when you're giving me a bath. So he's like, okay. So he's looking away from her as he's scrubbing her down. And then, you know, he's got to kind of glance to make sure he's getting everywhere. And as he's looking back and forth, there, there was this hook by the bathtub where they hung a loofah. And his wife for a long time was like, you got to get rid of that hook. Somebody's going to like lose an eye or something. He's like, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. And so as he's looking back and forth, he, he just like turns his head and the hook goes into his eyeball and through it, like just a, like a hot knife through butter, through the white of his eye and out above his eyebrow, just like, whoop. And so he, he kind of like stands up and he grabs the hook off the wall and he's holding it in both hands. And then his daughter starts screaming and freaking out, grabbing the hook, pulling on it. And he can feel his, like, eyeball kind of sucking out of the socket as his daughter's pulling on the hook. And fortunately, Partip used to be a cop. He was a cop for four years in, like, the roughest part of Milwaukee. So he's pretty cool under pressure. And he's just like, baby girl, you got to let go of the hook. <laughs> and so she she lets go of it and he, he stands up, he goes to the mirror and just kind of takes it out the same way he comes in and all this blood starts flying everywhere and he holds a towel above it, tells the kids to get dressed. Um, he's He has one his son in one arm and his, his daughter like tagging on his shirt as he walks out of the house. There's an urgent care across the street and he's calling his wife on the way and he's like, Preeti, you know, you know that hook <laughs> you were telling me to get rid of? It's, a funny thing happened. And as it was, it didn't affect his vision. But by the time he met me, and I say this with all endearment and love for Punjabi people who are I, – I, <laughs> it's like my second culture now. But it was just total like Punjabi fabulous that 
party would hold his eyelid up with a piece of tape <laughs> because it wouldn't stay up by itself. And he had to like, because it was held up with a tape, he would have to like manually blink every so often. And that's why his eye was taped up. And so he, as he told this story, I'm like literally like feeling his pain as he relayed this experience. And he saw this empathy in me. And, and he saw another human being like not only understanding but experiencing this pain that he went through as he relayed the story. And that totally broke the ice for both of us. And and we went from there to we sat down. I, we, we had a, a squash curry, which is my favorite dish there. And we, we uh, traded cups of tea all night. And we met at 6 p.m. And the place closes at 9. And it was almost 11 when Kang, uh, one of the servers and a good friend of mine, was like, Arnold, we we closed like two hours ago. <laughs> we, you guys mind? And they, they knew, you know what? They knew me really well. They knew my story, and they they I had told them about meeting party. But so that's why they they let us like roll almost all night. But so we we talked for almost five hours just without batting an eye. And as we talked, we found out that we had so much more in common than anyone could imagine. And and us being so different on paper, I, I really want to know more about his dad. And he said that his dad was the kind of guy who would never pay anybody to fix anything. Like, whether he knew how to fix it or not, he was going to take a crack at it. And so he this resulted in him having the lawnmower apart on the living room carpet in the middle of winter one year, much to his mother's horror. And I was like, dude, my dad did that too. And all the, these like thing, little anecdote after anecdote were just like we're – we're brothers from another mother. Like we're so alike, and and uh, ever since then, Pardeep's been my my best friend. Uh, we're absolutely brothers. Um, we fight once in a while, <laughs> just like real brothers do. But I, I, th- there's few people in the world that I'm closer to. Me and his relationship uh, has really flowered now into a, into a friendship, and, and just a, a mutual healing, where I, I call him. Uh, if I'm feeling down about something, if I can't understand something, if I feel, you know, uh, like my emotions inside are getting the best of me. And I think he does the same. Uh, we've been able to confide in each other. We, you know, we hang out with each other's families. We go to lunch three times a week. So, I mean, it's, it's a genuine friendship uh, of understanding. Um, it just is, you know, he's a good, good man. his relationship is something I treasure so much. And it's also something that both of us want to, we really want to broadcast to the world to let other people know how much we have in common as human beings. And when we can connect on that foundation of common humanity, first and foremost, and start from there, now we're in a position to address issues of privilege, to address issues of race, of uh, religious intolerance of intolerance of sexual identity, gender identity, like all we're, we're in a position to address all of these social illnesses that our society suffers from, but without connecting on that foundation of common humanity, I, I don't think we have a chance to address those things. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, more from Pardeep and Arno. Stay with us. Before we get back to the show, have you found I'm Still Here on Apple Podcasts? 
If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or tell a friend. Or you can send us an email, still here at HuffPost.com. Okay, now back to the show. When we left off, Pardeep and Arno had their first meeting at the Thai restaurant. Here's Chris Mathias. Pardeep told me that becoming friends with Arno was part of his radical way of forgiving Paige. And Arno explained that that forgiveness is exactly how hate is defeated. You're never going to hate white supremacy out of existence, he said. And so the two decided to work together and founded a group called Serve to Unite. In the last few years, they've toured the country teaching students about the dangers of hate. Me and Arnold do a lot of work as far as like in schools, but uh, you know, more recently we've been doing a lot of work in communities, um, and, and just just working um, on that whole uh, reconciliation process. How do we move forward? Um, you know, one of the towns that we were just in was a small suburb of of Boston called Groton, and Groton, you know, was going through their whole demographic shift going from a traditionally white town, a traditional Bostonian uh, uh, culture to uh, an embracing culture. And then like I said there was other religious uh, minorities who were moving in and uh, you know trying to navigate that whole uh, tension. So uh, you know we do a lot of work um, with government agencies, state departments, um, obviously schools, educational facilities, but just really exploring like what, what does healing look like? So do you basically go into the classroom and like tell you your story, like you and Arno's yeah. story? Yeah. Um, and you're not necessarily like mediating between different students or anything? You're no, no. Typically, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, preventative work, I would call it. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of times it's it's with, with students, um, engaging them and in, 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 in being um, sort of the change makers and and uh, empowering empowering schools and communities to to be the change agents. Party ever since the shooting has been he's been like a responder to mass shootings. Sandy Hook happened uh, later in 2012, and he was uh, counseling and consoling parents of Sandy Hook like days after it happened. So after uh, Charleston. All of us, Pardeep and his brother Amardeep, um, we were like, we got to go down there. And so uh, Par is a big old suburban, and me, Par, and Arm piled in there with uh, Arm's a filmmaker. So he, we had uh, four of his crew in there, and, and we shot down. Uh, it's it supposed to be a 16-hour drive. It ended up taking 20 as we got lost. But uh, I went down there like just hoping to offer service and, and hoping to help someone. And when I arrived and saw the scene outside of the church it was i mean it was hundreds of people like literally celebrating life like singing and holding each other and and defying hatred in the most powerful way i've ever seen just like hate is not going to break us we are not going to lose our faith we're not going to lose our love i think what drove us to go down there was that I, I personally, I feel a, a, a drive to bear witness to suffering. It's fascinating Pardeep and Arno have come together and to hear about the work that they are doing. But Chris, 
The week after you left Oak Creek, you went to Charlottesville, Virginia to report on the Unite the Right rally. And then all hell broke loose. Yeah, 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 I was there. It was scary. Um, You know, I've spent a good chunk of this last year going to white supremacist rallies like Charlottesville, but um, obviously Charlottesville was something else. I, I talked to a lot of Nazis. I saw a lot of violence. I was in the parking garage where white supremacists beat up DeAndre Harris. I interviewed people who were there with, when Heather Heyer was killed. And, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I saw over 100 men being out and proud um, white supremacists. They, they weren't wearing hoods. And the whole time, I just kept thinking about Pardeep and Arno and what they would think about this. What did Pardeep think about this? Well, I recently gave him a call to find out. Hey, Pardeep, it's uh, Chris from HuffPost. How are you? Hey, Chris. Doing good. Good. Um, so the last time I talked to you was in uh, Wisconsin, and it was right around the fifth anniversary of the Oak Creek Massacre. And about a week later, I went to Charlottesville and was there for all that. Um, and I've been thinking about you and Arno a lot over the last few months, and I was really curious about kind of your impressions of Charlottesville and what you thought of what you saw there. Yeah, so I mean, me finding out about Charlottesville, uh, I was getting off an airplane, just coming back home. I took a trip out to Tampa with my wife just to kind of re- they recalibrate after uh, August 5th. And, uh, and we, when we were coming back, I heard the news about, about it. And, uh, you know, I, I have some friends, some old-time friends, uh, my former roommates who were with me, and just kind of told them what was happening, and some of them were in uh, disbelief. Other people were, thought that it was some kind of like sham or not, you know, something that wasn't like really happening um, the way that that the way that it was perceived on the media. And I think that that's kind of where I, I kind of see people right now. They're um, and, you know that they're at different stages of of, of denial, grief. Um, you know, we think about grief, we think about like the whole denial, anger bargaining, sadness, acceptance, uh, uh, you know, uh, stages that people are kind of on. And just people are at different stages of accepting that racism like that exists in America. Were you shocked by what you saw in Charlottesville to see that many people, uh, you know, that many like white supremacists in one place kind of, you know, not being scared to kind of show their faces? Is that something you would have expected? You know, I wouldn't have expected it before that, but I, I guess I wasn't too shocked in a weird kind of way um, of like, yeah, so this is our new reality that we exist in right now. But in, in a way, also appreciative that um, we could recognize that, that, that it does exist that way, because as we're going back to this whole, um, you know, denial grief process of, of losing what we think in our mind. Our, our our idea of what America represents to, you know, people outside of us, we need to understand that, like, hey, you know what, it, it maybe doesn't mean the same thing, and uh, people are going through different struggles. And, and so I, I guess, I'm, in a way, I was kind of, like, relieved that, so, that, that, that that's out there. Now we can accept it and kind of do something about it. So you, you were kind of relieved that, like, at least it was out in the open? Yeah, yeah, and in, in the way that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of relieved that a lot of this stuff is seeing uh, the light of day, and we're not, we're not stuck in. Oh no, it's not as bad as you think, uh, and, and we can say no, it's, it's, it's really that bad, and, and I think that's what kind of you know, as Donald Trump, 
uh, celebrates his first year of of being uh, you know you know the U.S. president, I think people are really starting to find just how bad it it probably was. Um, but now it's much more in your face and out there. So that that's that's my relief. The part of me that's not relieved, honestly, Chris, is that um, I do fear for for people. I, I fear I fear that um, you know we just had well, like the three deadliest uh, mass shootings in U.S. history have happened in the past 17 months. And thinking about things like that, I, I think there's going to be an escalation of violence. And I'm not like any kind of, you know, I'm not any kind of like doomsday prepper or, uh, you know, apocalyptic-minded type of person. But, um, I mean, I, I think we do got to, like, understand that America is going through a, a soul-searching uh, a time right now, and we're going to have to really find out what we are made of. Speaking of all the mass shootings, you know, I've heard a lot of people say in New York, like on Twitter, where where have you, that like these things are like so frequent now that when you see it in the news, they're like people I think are feeling a little numb about it, like number maybe yeah. than they used to. But, you know, yeah. as, as someone whose family, you know, experienced this directly, um, you know, what what is it like for you kind of on an emotional level when you see, you know, what happened in Texas this week and the last mass shooting before that? Yeah, I, for me, it's honestly, I, I'm, I'm angry about it. Um, I'm frustrated that we can't do anything about it. I think, uh, you know, I, I just got back from uh, Sandy Hook Elementary last week, and that was an incredibly uh, just emotional time. But, but being there, having the school built on top of the old school, not really having a time, like there's no place to really mourn or bear witness um, in Sandy Hook. So I mean, I just like emotionally raw is where where I'm at. But I mean, I'm also very optimistic. I, I have a great support structure. Um, I'm surrounded by friends and family and people like Arnold, who, who you know continue to like continue to do this on a day to day basis. So um, I mean, it's just a reminder that we we have, we have so much work to be done, and that's not going to happen if we just deny that this this exists. You know, Sandy Hook reminds me of that. Is that we had 20 kids who are 20 first graders and our country, if we don't do something about that, we we've basically accepted a new low. Uh, and uh, almost to the point that the human mind cannot fathom an atrocity in that sense. And now even thinking about the details coming out of uh, Texas and as the shooter went to just kill anybody and everybody who was there and released 450 rounds in a closed space. Um, the the rage that America has to deal with, as far as like the the consciousness uh, of this rage, boggles the mind uh, to the point that I think we do feel a little bit numb and helpless. But um, but you know we can't rest in that. We got to understand where it's coming from, but we just can't sit there and say it's okay for us to be numbed out or or normalize this because that's what trauma does continuous trauma, multi-generational trauma will get you to the point that you can normalize violence and atrocity. Wow. Um, and I guess just to kind of finish things off, um, yeah. I, I hadn't realized that you had been to Sandy Hook recently. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you did there and who you talked to and what it was like? Yeah, so we were there, me and Arnold were there, we were doing um, a presentation for the ADL and the cops and culture, uh, bringing cops together with community and, and just, uh, you know, trying to heal that, uh, 
uh, rift that exists between uh, you know police and, and community relationships and uh, sort of engaging in what does community policing look like. That was the first day. And the second day, we went to go work with uh, Jeremy, um, who, uh, Jeremy and Jennifer, who are fa- uh, who lost their daughter um, that day. And he, uh, what he does is he runs a uh, organization that engages in um, uh, neuro- the neuroscience of compassion and really talking about, like, what, what the, where does that lie in your brain? Um, and so, so working with them, and, and you know, it was just incredibly hard to, to be there, and I kind of let them know that day. Is, I, I, you know, I, we do these presentations all the time, but this, the sadness and the sorrow that exists in that town is unmatched um, to the point that you could feel it literally in your bones that the proper grieving process had not happened even five years from the from the shooting, you know we're we're going on five years from the Sandy Hook shooting, and I I feels like that town is just not not has not healed at all. So between Charlottesville and all these mass shootings recently. Sutherland Springs, Las Vegas, Orlando, and so many others, it doesn't feel like the things that cause Oak Creek um, white supremacy and gun violence are going away anytime soon. But it seems like five years later, Oak Creek has come together in a really remarkable way. Yeah, no, that's that's completely right. There's this, when I was out there, there was this concept I learned about in Sikhism called uh, Shardikiwa. And what it means is to be in a state of relentless hope and optimism, regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in. Um, And I spoke with Steve Scafidi, who was the mayor of Oak Creek at the time of the shooting. And he told me about how this idea of Shardikula has manifest in the community over the last five years. The common complaint from uh, people is that they forget about you once the story is not news anymore. I would say that's not the case. I mean, we are looked upon as an example of a community that responded in the right way. Um, when I spoke at the, at the um, vigil, I said, we're not going to let this define us. And we didn't. We always looked, looked for the positives. And for me, the positive is the new relationship, new understanding of diversity and you know why tolerance matters, why understanding that you shouldn't hate someone because they look different. All those things we've done, horrible, horrible day, tragic beyond belief but the life experience after that is absolutely incredible and the relationships that were developed are incredible and again when you know the families you know six people lost their lives uh, i guess that's the tremendous example that the community shows because in the face of that where like a guy like me would be vengeful and full of hate they were compassionate and, and didn't see things that way that's the unique thing about the six um, and probably one of the reasons why the story has played out the way it has because they led the way. They weren't angry and bitter and full of hate. They saw it as a teaching opportunity and a chance to tell the story of the people that were killed, but also the story of Sikhism and why it matters. And so, again, positives out of negatives. If the country had to learn a lesson from Oak Creek, what what do you think it it is? Uh, Well, a couple things. One, don't wait for a tragedy to get to know people that look differently, pray differently, speak differently than you do. So don't wait for that moment to happen. But what I learned is once I got to know members of the Sikh community, members of the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin, is the fact that 
their families are like our my family like your family they're all the same they have the same issues they have kids that act like goofs and they you know struggle with money and you know all the things that everybody else has they have it's just they pray differently and so the understanding is that once i got to know them maybe i should have known that before that but it took that to make me understand you know what this is silly so you know it takes that it, it took that to get them to be a part of my family and vice versa it just seems odd that we would wait for that so people ask me about it all the time even in context outside of the anniversaries people want to know the story and it's because of the people one that are that lived it but two they're telling the story people like Pardeep Kalek or Arna McCollis they're out and about telling the story of Oak Creek it's a powerful story and uh, it, it's it's fundamental in context of what's happening in the world now. I, I always say this in speeches. If you would have told me five years later things would be worse, I would have said you're crazy. I, I thought, okay, we have an awareness that there's differences in people. We would respond better. I'm not seeing that play out. Now, you talk to some of the people at the in the sick community, they see the positives, even though there's still a lot of hate crime. So their optimism gives me optimism and gives me hope, but I'm surprised we're at where we're at. I think the biggest thing that I would uh, want the country to know is is that, uh, you know, the personal story of these six immigrants. Um, you know, there's another immigrant, his name is Bobo Punjab Singh. Um, he, he is still in a vegetative state five years, um, five years this August 5th. Um, there was a police officer who was shot 15 times. Um, there was other community members who were harmed. There was children who will never, uh, who will who will try to process the scars, but will c- still carry those scars with them. Um, you know, so that these these are people, um, and I would want the community to know know that because I feel like sometimes we sort of otherize um, people to the point that we don't empathize with them. So, um, I mean, five years is a long time, and I, I know that people can be inspired, but I would want people to be committed. Five years is a commitment, and, and just be committed to, to, to addressing, um, you know, the, the ills that society has going forward. Be committed for not only those people, but for your own children. Um, leave, leave them with a sense of purpose. We, you know, oftentimes we say um, radicalization happens not just because of ideology, but because of lack of purpose. People want to be bigger than themselves. So if you want to be bigger than yourself, go ahead and be bigger than yourselves, but solve problems that are facing society. Sometimes you think about it and it's just surreal that that ghosts can inspire us to do great things. Um, so, so, I mean, it's, it's incredibly moving. It's, it's incredibly moving still that uh, people still um, are showing up, are, 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 you know, there's still media attention. There's, 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 there's so I think, uh, you know, for me and our, and our community, it helps us to know that uh, people are essentially good. Um, they have that, you know, and when, when times like this uh, happen, you know, we, we show the best of ourselves. I'm Still Here is a HuffPost podcast produced and edited by Nick Offenberg and Jessica Samacow. This story was reported by Christopher Mathias. Our field producer was Nick Offenberg. I'm Ziba Blay. 
And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or send us an email. Tell us your story of survival. Still here at HuffPost.com. On the next episode of I'm Still Here. There's a concern among people who have lived here a long time or who are from here that the newcomers are changing the city and its culture. We're looking at the prospect of a, a whiter, wealthier city that potentially threatens all of the things that makes New Orleans the reason why people want to come here in the first place.